Good morning. Let us give our full attention now to God's Word. Begin in, in Acts chapter 13. And this morning we will consider verses 1 through 12, Acts chapter 13. Since we have been away from Acts for quite some time, I want to take this opportunity to kind of bring it all within the context. Acts, as you might know, it belongs to a greater biblical narrative. It uh, stands within the stream, the flow of redemptive history, going all the way back to the Pentateuch, the book of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, uh, and through the historical books, the wisdom literature, the prophets and the gospel, etc. And speaking of prophets, it was Isaiah, the prophet who lived and ministered about 700 years before the coming of the Lord, who prophesied the following, for to us a child is what? Born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen? Amen. Fast forward to the very end of the book of Matthew, chapter 28, verse 18 and 20. And you'll find the one of whom Isaiah prophesied, the Lord Jesus himself, saying this to his disciples, All authority has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then let's enter into the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, and we find the same Jesus right before his ascension saying to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The book of Acts shows us how is it that the child announced by Isaiah that Prince of Peace assumes and carries out his government, which is upon his shoulder. That government, which was said to increase. Acts is then the historical picture of the spiritual increase of Christ's government. And this is why I love the book of Acts. For it reveals that the reign and the rule of Jesus is not theoretical, but actual. It is not theoretical. It is actual. And it doesn't just happen in a corner somewhere in the world. It is overall the world's. As our passage will make clear, Christ Jesus advances his purposes in the real world within real towns and cities with real names embedded in real cultures through the proclamation of real people speaking real world words to real people for real change. There is much geography, for example, given to us in Acts 13 because it opens up what is known as Paul's first missionary journey. And Luke, the writer, is interested in tracing these journeys as a historian of redemptive history 
to show us precisely that the progress of the gospel happens in the course of real history and it spreads in real geography, real geography. Moreover, this progress of the gospel includes real persecution, real suffering, and real death, which is where we left off. In Acts chapter 12, we saw the second martyrdom, and this time it was the martyrdom of an apostle. James, the brother of John, was killed by the sword at the hand of Herod Agrippa the first, who also, the Bible says, put Peter in prison in Acts chapter 12. However, Peter was freed from prison by an angel, you remember that? And Herod died under the judgment of God. In Acts chapter 12, verse 24, we were told that the word of God increased and multiplied, increased and multiplied. By this time, the gospel of Jesus had reached the first Gentile city, namely Antioch. Antioch. According to Acts chapter 11, Barnabas and Saul ministered there in Antioch for an entire year. And remember that in Antioch, the disciples were first called what? Christians, the first time that we were called Christians. Through the prophecy of a man named Agabus, the disciples in Antioch learned about a coming famine that would greatly affect the Christians in Jerusalem. So they sent Barnabas and Saul with a monetary gift. Having done that, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem to Antioch, and the Bible says they brought with them John Mark. But in the midst of all these details, important as they are, we are seeing here in the book of Acts the inner workings of the reign of Jesus in the world. Please do not lose sight of that fact. This is the main thread running through the book of Acts. Behind the busyness of missions stands the reign of Jesus in the world. Missions is the church calling the world to look to the Son of God, the one mediator between God and man, and to confess Him as Lord. In other words, missions are many micro-stories, namely missionary activity, that belong to one macro-story, namely redemption in Christ. With this in mind, I want to give you four main truths about missions that we learn from our text this morning, immediately followed by five timely warnings to which we must pay careful attention. Here's the first truth we learn about missions. Missions, plural, is the mission of God. Verses 1 through 5. Missions is the mission of God. Verses 1 through 5. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Luke, as you will remember, is giving us a historical report. Like a journalist, Luke is narrating 
events related to the work of God in the world. In a book called Reforming Journalism, the author explains how every good journalist should seek to answer five W questions and one H question. The five W's are who, what, when, where, and why. Very good. And the one H question is how. Luke answer, answers all of them. First, who? Who is involved in this? Luke gives us a list of five names, five names, men who were known as prophets and teachers, although he doesn't give us the details to who is who in this section. The five names are Barnabas, a Levite from Cyprus, that, who was already mentioned in Acts chapter 4, Simeon, and Simeon is a black man from Africa. And we know this because Niger, the name, that, that word literally means dark means dark skin, and presumably he is the same man who helped Jesus carry his cross, presumably. We don't know that for sure. Then Lucius, another man from North Africa. Manan, who was, a close, who was close to one of the Herods and probably became a great source of information for Luke. That's why he knew so much about the Herodians. And finally, we're given the name Saul. And we know this is the former persecutor of the church who will soon go by Paul. The who question then is really important. It's really important for it reveals a critical detail coming right out of the obvious ethnic diversity that you see in these five men. What is that critical detail? It is this. The church is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise to bless all the families of the earth. These names reveal that now Jews and Gentiles are one, unified in one glorious purpose centered upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider with me now the what question. We looked at the who. Let's look at the what. What is going on? They are gathered as a church and they are fasting, and they are worshiping the Lord. We'll return to that later on. Third, consider the when. When question. This is happening right after Saul and Barnabas returned from Jerusalem, having taken their monetary gift to help the people in Jerusalem with the famine. And then they returned to Antioch. Fourth, the where question, the where question. The Bible says that all of this is happening in the city of Antioch one of the largest cities and most prominent cities of the Roman Empire. Antioch was located in the region of Syria, just north of Palestine. From there, from there, these missionaries, Saul and Barnabas, went south to a port city called Seleucia, which was also in Syria. And from there, the Bible says that they sailed to Cyprus, which is an island where both Salamis and Paphos were located. And Paphos is as far as we will go this morning. And now let's look at the final W question. Why are they in Antioch? Because of persecution. According to Acts chapter 11, verse 19, persecution is the reason why the gospel came to Antioch. And so now we turn to the, the question having to do with the practical issues. The H question, how? 
How? How is any of this possible? For instance, how can persecution be instrumental in the progress of the gospel rather than detrimental to it? Moreover, how can men of different ethnic backgrounds be now together under one common purpose, strategizing as to how to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? How is any of this possible? Well, the answer is that there is a sixth name given to us on that list, the most important name. It is the one doing all the speaking in verse 2. It is none other than the Holy Spirit. It is the invisible one behind all that is good. I try never to miss an opportunity to remind us all that the Holy Spirit is the third person, the third person of the Holy Trinity, not an energy, not an impersonal force. The Holy Spirit, He spoke. He set apart Barnabas and Saul for a purpose to which he called them. And it was the Holy Spirit who subsequently sent them out to Cyprus, as we see in verse 4, which was the very hometown of Barnabas. The Spirit does all that a person does. The Spirit is a he, not an it. Not an it. Therefore, it is absolutely essential that we don't miss the Spirit's direct involvement in missions. When our team goes to Guatemala, the Spirit will go with them. He does the work because missions, in an ultimate sense, is the mission of God. Is the mission of God. It is His missions. Notice, please, that we are not the ones taking the initiative. It is God the Holy Spirit, the force behind missions is divine. It is, in fact, love divine, the spirit of love. The spirit guided Barnabas and Saul as they preached the word in the synagogues of the Jews at Salamis in verse 5. We don't know the extent of John Mark's involvement, but we do know the spirit's involvement. Now, the personality of the Holy Spirit is truly, truly wonderful, for it yields the following truth. Don't miss this. Salvation is personal. Salvation is personal. The love of God for you is personal. The care of God for you is personal. God, the Holy Spirit, personally called you, regenerated you, gave you faith, loves you, upholds you, sustains you, guides you, and keeps you. The Spirit himself used the preaching of his word. The, the Spirit himself used the person that shared the word with you. And all the circumstances surrounding your conversion, everything was the work of the Spirit. He did it all himself 
for you. The love of God for you, my Christian friend, is personal, not impersonal. You are not here because of chance, because of destiny or happenstance. You are here because the Holy Spirit is on a mission with your specific name on it, manifested through Christian conversion, materialized through sanctification, through faith in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So take this truth home with you today. The Holy Spirit set apart Barnabas and Saul thousands of years ago to get to you. The Holy Spirit personally set apart these men thousands of years ago to get to you and to your children and to all who would believe in the Lord. Praise the Lord for that. He has been working for thousands of years to get to you so that you might know the name of Christ. But with the personal movement of the Spirit into all the world, since He is the Spirit of righteousness and love, meaning since, since He is the Spirit of Christ, then in a world full of unrighteousness, hate, and dominated by the Spirit of Antichrist, we can expect that missions will also involve unavoidable opposition, which is what we see next in verses 6 through 8. Missions involve unavoidable opposition. Let's read verses 6 through 8. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Salamis and Paphos were located in the extreme opposites of the island of Cyprus. And in Paphos, meaning the southwest section of the island, they encountered Barnabas and Saul. The Bible says that they encountered fierce opposition coming from a magician. I'm telling you, don't trust magicians. Something about them. As soon as I read verses 6 through 8, my mind went to another story involving opposition to God. But before I tell you what story is, consider what Elymas did. He sought to turn the man in charge, the politician, away from the faith. Why? Most likely because Elymas, the magician's relationship with Sergius Paulus involved, what do you think? Money. Money. This was business for the magician. And essential to his business was that Sergius Paulus remained blinded to the truth or to anything that would end that business partnership. Elymas then opposed the gospel preached by Barnabas and Saul. Now let's see what happened next by considering the following lesson regarding missions, which might be somewhat uncomfortable to some of us. Here's the next lesson. Missions do not exclude the judgment of God. Missions do not exclude the judgment of God. And now we're entering into verses 9 through 11. Now, when Peter encountered Simon the magician, remember that? In Acts 9, he was very stern with him. 
And he said to Simon, may your silver perish with you. Your heart is not right with God. Repent of this wickedness. Evidently, and for some reason, the apostles had no patience with magicians. And there was a reason for that. Ever, ever since the events of the Exodus, now pay attention to this. Ever since the events of the Exodus, magicians went down in history as enemies of God. In his second letter to Timothy, in chapter 3, verse 8, Paul mentions Pharaoh's magicians by name. Do you remember the names? Janus and Jambres. That's according to Jewish um, tradition. That was the, those were the names of the magicians that opposed Moses. Magicians were at the very center of the conflict between Pharaoh and Moses. They used their magic, or better yet, their demonic powers to counter Moses' miracles, and therefore they stood as prototypical enemies of God and agents of Satan. That's magic. Magicians were no joke. The world of magic, by the way, is no joke. It can be very, very dangerous. And here, if you think about it, the setup is similar. In fact, I wonder if Peter and Paul both remember the Exodus account when they encounter magicians. Sergius Paulus, for example, was a man of political authority like Pharaoh, and Elimus was his court magician like the wizards of Pharaoh. Paul then knew better than to just let this go. Consider the name of the magician in verse 6, Bar-Jesus. What an interesting name. The word bar means son, son. All the names that begin with bar mean son of. Barnabas, Bartholomew, Bartimaeus. All of them mean son of so and so. So it is interesting here, bar <laughs> Jesus. And it means son of Joshua, meaning son of Salvation, son of salvation. But in verse 10, Paul actually reverses his name to match his true identity. In verse 10, Paul says, you are not the son of salvation. You are not fooling anyone, Elimus. In fact, you are the opposite. You are the son of the devil a partner of Satan himself. This, brothers and sisters, serves to confirm how Satan operates. Notice again that Elimus called himself son of salvation in order to present himself attractive, innocent, helpful. And that is how Satan operates, is it not? To the Corinthians, Paul said, in 2 Corinthians 11, 14 and 15, for even Satan disguises himself as what? An angel of light. So it is not surprised, says Paul, if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. You see, Elymas knew what he was doing. This man, Elymas, 
presented himself as an alternative to the gospel, a type of savior. This is what one missiologist called, and I quote, the frightening power of Satan. The frightening power of Satan. This is a good time to remind all of us of some things, important things. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, Satan is called the prince of the power of the air, meaning Satan creates a dark atmosphere in the world, something people breathe in without even knowing it, as Sergius Paulus did before the gospel reached them. But Satan is also called, listen to this, don't miss this, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Do you know what we learn from that passage? Satan is not passive. He is active. Ancient Job reveals this in Job chapter 1, verse 7. Please listen to this. When God asks Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Satan, brothers and sisters, is not just standing around. He is a busy and evil initiative taker. I'm going to say this carefully, but I wonder if Satan stands as a rebuke to passive, inactive, and disinteresting Christians who want nothing to do for the salvation of souls. In this particular case, please notice Satan was at work, at work. He's working at work in a politician, using the deceptions of a willing magician. Satan, brothers and sisters, is most definitely into politics. A realm I fear many Christians have simply given up to the enemy. Satan knows that if you can corrupt rulers, you can destroy societies. The Roman Empire was in total darkness. And it is into this darkness that Paul and Barnabas were headed right into it, not away from it. But on that day, God had mercy on Sergius Paulus. He delivered him from the deceitfulness of Elymas and Satan. But notice how it came about. Notice how this redemption for, for Sergius Paulus came about through temporal judgment on Elymas. The words of Paul are as severe as they come, beginning in verse 10. You son of the devil. Ooh. When was the last time you said something like that to anybody? I don't recommend. Okay. You son of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Shocking words indeed. You son of the devil. However, I don't want those shocking words to distract you from the real shocker. Okay? I don't want you to miss it. Did you see it? The real shocker. The real shocker is in verse 9. That's the real shock. 
But Saul, who was also called Paul, notice the following words, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, please stop for a moment and consider this with me. Some of the most severe words you will find in all the scripture against a person were inspired by the Spirit himself. There is an important, mightily important lesson for us to glean from these, which I will bring up when we get to the warnings. In the meantime, let me point out several things about this judgment. First, it came from the Lord himself. It was not the devil who took over for the judgment. Not at all. It was the Lord's hand that fell upon Elimus with judgment. Second, it came in the form of literal darkness. Darkness is a very common indicator of judgment in the Bible. It is, in fact, the difference between Christians and non-believers. We Christians are not in the darkness, but we are of the light. And we must walk as children of light, Ephesians 5, 8. And we must take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. In fact, the Bible says we must expose them, Ephesians 5, 11. The judgment of God in missions can be seen in the fact, listen to this, that as the gospel goes out into the world, some are delivered from darkness like Sergius Paulus, while others are kept in it like the magician. In either case, missions moves forward either through deliverance or judgment. The point is this. God never loses. God never loses. From this, we learn the following lesson. Judgment upon unrepentant unbelievers is not incompatible with the advance of the gospel in the world. Divine judgment is not necessarily a barrier to gospel progress. At times, judgment is precisely how the mission advances in the world. James Hamilton, a professor of theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, he wrote a book titled, God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment. The whole premise of the book is to demonstrate that God always advances his saving purposes in the world both by both saving his elect and also judging his enemies. Consider this. During the Exodus, during the Exodus, God saved Israel through the judgment he brought upon Egypt. Likewise, in our story, the Holy Spirit was not defeated by the magician. Rather, the magician was defeated by the Spirit in judgment, which also resulted in the salvation of someone else, Sergius Paulus. Therefore, here's the next lesson regarding missions. And we're almost done. Just kidding. <laughs> missions always results in the victory of God. Missions always results in the victory of God. Verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. It is difficult for any of us to really understand what it must have been like for Sergius Paulus to come to the light. This man might just be the most truly Gentile man to ever come to faith. He had no biblical context whatsoever. And for the first time in his life, light shone in his heart He didn't ask for it. The Spirit found him and saved him. 
this is grace. But the more important lesson here is that even in the midst of actual opposition, the Spirit of God is always in control. No matter how fierce the enemy, how terrifying the encounter, how difficult the conversation, how hostile the crowd, how painful the process, or how severe the threats, missions always result in the victory of God because the Spirit himself is behind it all. So let us be encouraged. That's the story. That's the story. Let me give you five brief warnings that we see in this story. Maybe these are soft rebukes for myself as I was reading this passage. Here's the first one. Let us not neglect. Let us not neglect seeking the Lord for the raising and sending of missionaries into all the world. From our passage, we learned a critical lesson, brothers and sisters. Discouragement and or passivity when it comes to missions could be, and it might often be, the direct result of neglecting prayer and fasting. Meaning, listen to this, we minimize missions when we maximize our independence from God. And I say it that way so that you have to think about it. We minimize missions when we maximize our independence from God. I don't rejoice in saying this about any church, but any church that lacks in missionary fervor and zeal might just be a church that has lost sight of its true delight, namely Christ Jesus and his glory. We are living in different times. We speak different languages, but the need is the same and the glory and the worthiness of the Lord Jesus remains undiminished. Do we often seek the Lord when it comes to missions? How fervent is our prayer for the Lord to use us in the spread of his glory among the nations? Are we a people of prayer so that the Lord will raise missionaries among us and raise missionaries among us? Something to consider. Next warning is here. Let us not confuse, let us not confuse, and some of you are going to laugh at this, let us not confuse being nice with the fruit of the Spirit. In case you missed it, here's a quick lesson. Being filled with the Spirit doesn't always mean being nice. I imagine that a lot of modern people would take issue with how Paul addressed the magician. You son of the devil. Well, Paul, that wasn't very nice. You should apologize to the son of the devil. Don't miss that fact that Paul said this essentially as a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke didn't say, and Paul forgetting about the Holy Spirit or Paul losing his cool. Not at all. Luke wants us to know explicitly that what Paul said, those harsh sounding words were actually spirit led which creates a question, right? Isn't this a contradiction of the fruit of the Spirit? Of course not. How could the Spirit lead Paul to speak in this way to the magician if it was a contradiction to who he is? That would be blasphemy. May it never be. So what's the warning for us? What's the warning? I think it is this. Don't allow an obsession with niceness 
to become an excuse for a deficiency in true biblical love or lack of courage to speak the truth. As Christians, we are simply bound to offend people because of the call to repentance and faith. Ask yourself, are we enamored with being nice to the degree that we are no longer willing to be deemed offensive, thus compromising the mission? One writer managed to offer a short summary of the modern 21st century Western Christian in the context of our present moral and social difficulties and challenges with these heart-wrenching and penetrating words. He said the Christian believer is, quote, constantly ready to flee. Constantly ready to flee. May those four words never be true of us. May we never become controversialists for the fun of it. But may we never retreat from fighting for the truth, even at great cost. Are we willing to call out evil when we see it? Or are, are we so desperate to protect our reputations that we no longer are willing to be called names for the sake of the gospel and its truth? Are we simply too lost in niceness? Are you willing to be deemed offensive for the sake of of the gospel? Are you willing to live as one who could create in some a desire to repent and in others a desire to stone you? You son of the devil, said Paul. Strong words. Now, I'm not suggesting that tomorrow you go to your co-worker and call him a son of the devil. That would be unwise. All I'm asking is that we ask ourselves, are we so enamored with a peaceful life that the prospect of actually experiencing the hatred of the world is not even within the realm of possibilities anymore because we just want to be nice. That's a real question that we need to wrestle with in our day. Next, let us not forget that missions is a Trinitarian endeavor. Missions is a Trinitarian endeavor. Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. And what is the Spirit? The Spirit is Christ with us. Jesus promised that He will be with us until the end of the age. And because of the Holy Spirit, we are never alone. And as I have said from this pulpit before, Christian missions will eventually be successful because the guarantee comes not from us, but from the love between the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Missions is a Trinitarian endeavor. What the Father promised the Son, the Son will get because of his obedience unto death upon the cross. And the Spirit will make sure that this is so. The mission will not fail because it is sustained and guaranteed by eternal, indestructible, divine love. Next. Let us not fear the darkness around us, for this never indicates the defeat of the gospel. I mentioned that Acts stands within the stream of redemptive history, and in particular, Acts is showing us the increase or the spread of the reign of Christ through the preaching of the gospel. Now, as we look at the real darkness that surrounds us, I want us to consider something that the Father said to the Son in the form of prophecy in, through the mouth of David. In Psalm 110, verse 2, the Father says, 
rule in the midst of your enemies. The glory of the reign of Christ, brothers and sisters, lies upon this fact. Jesus doesn't need to have all his enemies removed in order to exercise his lordship. Rather, he rules in the midst of those who oppose him. And he rules through both salvation and judgment. What is our calling? Our calling is this. In view of the perfect rule of Jesus, let us be faithful, come what may. It is true, indeed, that God saves through judgment. So allow me to point out the blessed irony of all this. The magician experienced the temporal judgment of God through darkness, which fell upon him. The blessed irony is this. God saves sinners like that magician and us in the reality that the true and final judgment God placed upon his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he died upon the cross. Judgment fell on Christ so that forgiveness could fall upon you. But in any case, it is because of the judgment that fell upon Jesus that missions are now possible. And finally, let us not lose our longing. Let us not lose our longing for the worship of God to cover the earth. Let me give you a quick definition of missions. Missions is the worldwide spread of the gospel for the restoration and multiplication of proper worship, of proper worship. This takes us to verse 2. What were they doing in verse 2? They were worshiping the Lord. Ultimately, brothers and sisters, we do missions and we pray for missions because we want verse 2 multiplied in all the world. In other words, we do missions because we want God to be worshipped through Christ and by the Spirit. Or as John Piper famously said, quote, missions exist because worship doesn't. So soli deo gloria. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this brief reminder of the truth that you are active in the world. But the work of Jesus continues through the ministry of the Holy Spirit as your disciples preach and proclaim the gospel into the darkness. So, Father, let us have this confidence that the, word, the work has been accomplished by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and his subsequent resurrection. Help us to remember that we are not alone that no matter how deep the darkness, the Spirit is with us until the end. And so we remember the words of Christ, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So all praise and glory and honor be to you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.